Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. You've seen headlines about birds and other animals experiencing a steep decline in population, what scientists have described as the ongoing sixth mass extinction. But have you thought about this applying to insects as well? Insects are the most abundant animals on the planet, but scientists are also troubled by insect declines around the globe. Today, where we live, we'll talk with some of these scientists, including Yukon entomologist David Wagner. We'll also hear from an insect ecologist with the University of Nevada who has a new study published in the journal Science Today that looks at how climate change is driving butterfly decline in the American West. First, joining me now on Zoom is Elizabeth Colbert. She's staff writer at The New Yorker and Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Sixth Extinction. She wrote a cover story for National Geographic's May 2020 issue about worldwide insect decline. And Elizabeth has a new book out, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. Elizabeth, welcome to our show. Oh, thanks for having me. Also with us is Dr. David Wagner, entomologist and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn. Uh, David, welcome back. It's great to be here again. Uh, Elizabeth, I was surprised when I was reading your cover story. I think a lot of people don't think about insects being the most abundant animals on Earth. When you were working on this cover story, you had the opportunity to go out in the field with scientists. And I was wondering if you could describe seeing that cloud of butterflies, a butterfly eruption in front of you, and your thoughts when you saw it. Well, that was that was actually with with, with Matt up in uh, on a mountain called Castle Peak out um in California, and we had gotten to, I guess, I don't know, pretty close to 9,000 feet, a fantastic hike. And at the top of the mountain, there was this, as you say, cloud, but it wasn't exactly a cloud because it was it was moving. It was more like a sort of um, wind of butterflies, mm-hmm. really, truly one of the most spectacular uh, sights I've ever seen, just you know, thousands and thousands of butterflies in this mass migration uh, flutter, fluttering by, all the same, the same uh, species of butterfly, these um, wonderful uh, butterflies that are sort of orangey on the top and, and brown on the bottom. So they um, make this wonderful orange glow as they pass by. That must have been pretty epic to see that. Yeah, it was It was really, I mean, I, I had never seen a butterfly eruption before. I know Matt had, but it was really uh, stunning. And people, other people on the trail were just, you know, just everyone was sort of gobsmacked, just standing there watching <laughs> these uh, butterflies uh, flutter by. It gives you an idea of the massive scale of insects around us, Elizabeth. Yeah, I mean, insects, you know, have these tremendous, um, and Matt can certainly speak to this and Dave more than I can, but have these tremendous boom and bust cycles. You can get years and, you know, everyone in Connecticut is probably familiar with this. You get these huge outbreaks um, when conditions are correct. So that, you know, that is one of the challenges with with measuring insects numbers is have you, you know, just caught them during a bust year um, 
but that is exactly why Matt and Dave are out in the field all the time trying to get uh, measurements over, over of data over a long period of time so that they can flatten out those ups and downs. Mm -hmm. We'll be hearing from insect ecologist again, uh, Matt Forrester, coming up. Uh, but he did uh, share a video of uh, a butterfly eruption that we're going to tweet out at where we live so our listeners can see this. But Dave, I, I wanted to go to you. When I mentioned insects are among the most abundant groups of animals uh, on the planet, give us an idea of what we're talking about. How many insects are there out there? Uh, I don't know what the numbers are, but they're really the fabric of nature. Uh, they're almost inestimable. And so uh, billions upon billions upon billions. But in terms of how nature works and what's going on in, in these ecosystem functions we need, like pollination and clean water and uh, shredding leaves in the fall, putting that into dirt, arthropods and insects are really sort of the little things that tether and run the world. And without them, we're basically like tearing apart the tapestry of life. It's, it's one of those things, that I'm sure there's listeners that don't like any bugs, but it's, you can't live, uh, or those people may have trouble living with them, but we can't live without them. Nature would grind to a halt and everything that we love, uh, we would lose our birds, we would lose, start losing our plants, we would lose our food. We just, we have to take care of our insects. A number that uh, struck me in Elizabeth's article, uh, an estimated 10 quintillion insects in the world. So that's one with 18 zeros after it to give our listeners an idea, again, of the insect species that scientists know about. But there's so much more out there that scientists uh, are still discovering, Dave. Yeah, we can still find new species in Connecticut, but the, the real cradle of life is in the tropics where we think maybe 80 to 85% of the insects are still undescribed. And so we don't even know how many insects are in terms of numbers of kinds or species, but we're guessing it might be north of, of, of 10 million at this point, maybe 25,000 in Connecticut. I liked how you were describing uh, why insects are so beneficial uh, to us when we think about pollination and dispersing seeds, food for birds, as well as freshwater fish and land animals. Uh, Elizabeth, in your story for National Geographic, uh, I know scientists have tried to quantify, at least in the United States, when you think about a dollar value of what insects are doing uh, uh, for our country alone, $56 billion a year in work in the U United States each year. Yes, I mean, as, as Dave described, insects are, you know, to, to, to mix, mix species here, they're, they're sort of the workhorses of our ecosystems. And everything from moving seeds around, uh, which they do, you know, you can, you can watch them, watch the ants move the seeds around in, in, in your backyard if you want, um, to, to pollination, huge, you know, flowering plants. Uh, if you really, really want to change the face of the world, you know, if you get uh, drive some of these pollinators extinct or to very low numbers, you know, you simply don't have, you simply won't have the plants that they pollinate. They can't reproduce. Um, decomposers, they're, you know, the first line of decomposition. So uh, it's it's simply huge and, and, and it's, almost, it's virtually impossible for us to even imagine the world, you know, without them. You spoke to researchers in Germany who've been looking at data from the 1980s through present day. What trends are they seeing in terms of insect decline, Elizabeth? Well, that, that 
you're sort of alluding to a, a study that came out of Germany a few years ago, um, and that really caused made headlines around the world. It was a, it was a, you know pretty pretty rigorous study that just looked at insect biomass that were caught in these sort of traps that look like basically look like tents that have been blown over on their sides, um, and they just catch whatever comes by. And they had noticed this or they hadn't really noticed it, but when they went to uh, calculate, they just came up with this stunning decline in insect biomass uh, across a big swath of Germany. And that really got people's attention. The numbers were just so dire. Dave, uh, I would love to hear your reaction when you saw that study and what prompted you and others uh, to meet to talk about what scientists have observed around the globe. Well, you actually hit the nail on the head. So that was the one that I guess sounded the clarion call within the scientific community across the world. So the, not only were the numbers down, and they were down by three quarters, uh, but the real surprise and the worry came with the fact that this was observed over just 30 years, even even less than 30 years. So you're losing three quarters of your insects in, in three decades. And, and at that point, media from all across the world and scientists started paying attention uh, to this issue and realizing that we had a problem, we needed data and we needed to take action. We, you know, 56 million or billion dollars is really a low estimate. So that, that estimate that you gave doesn't include probably two of the most in, important functions of insects. One, we need insects to eat other insects in terms of biological control. That, that's sort of the balance of nature. And uh, we don't want aphids and uh, disease-carrying mosquitoes and some of these other things to take over the planet. So we, we know we're crashing into the Anthropocene. We know we're changing the planet. We know that climate change and deforestation are driving, you know, if if you're thinking about birds and we're talking about birds, uh, it's the same for insects. It's going to be the same for orchids. We, we have a biodiversity crisis and we need to be better stewards of, of the planet. But, but certainly that study uh, really sounded the alarm. And now there are literally thousands of scientists uh, across the globe and almost every nation worrying about their insect fauna. And, and, and in part, I think a lot of that focus is really driven towards pollinators because when we talk about pollinators we want pollinators for all the wildflowers on on the planet but we have to have them for our food so uh, so many of our fruits and our, our our crops are pollinated by insects we don't want to be out there with a paintbrush doing this by hand in, in order to eat an apple so it's, it's absolutely critical that we do a better job of taking care of these animals I'm glad you brought up the point about insects eating other insects. Uh, Elizabeth, in your story, uh, you also uh, wrote about the parasitoid wasps or Darwin wasps, uh, these wasps that are also able to, to lay their eggs and feast on caterpillars, uh, some that may then uh, be the, the caterpillars that destroy crops. Yes, and people have, you know, moved these animals around the world as well to, you know, there are natural these naturally occurring relationships where, you know, parasitoids um, that feed on other insects. And then there are even hyperparasitoids, just parasitoids that feed on parasitoids. So it, it, mm -hmm. it's sort of a very, very interesting little, you know, miniature ecosystem of its own. Uh, one insect can, you know, be home to other insect species. 
But they've also been, you know, when we try to do biocontrol, we often move around these insects. And that's something that Dave has been thinking about a lot, I know, because we've talked about it, what, what impacts those may be having that we didn't intend. Hmm. Again, uh, you were talking about insect decline with my guests uh, here on Where We Live, Elizabeth Colbert, staff writer at The New Yorker, Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Sixth Extinction. She wrote a cover story for National Geographic's May 2020 issue about worldwide insect decline. And also with us is Dr. David Wagner, entomologist and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn. Uh, Dave, you mentioned uh, this study that got a lot of scientists concerned. So I'm wondering if you could talk more about uh, while scientists are studying this and observing, uh, depending on the region that they work in, just uh, when you drive around uh, certain areas of the country, are there particular things that the public may be noticing, like windshield effect? What is that? And, and again, is this another sign that we should be concerned? Well, uh, first I should men mention that I'm 64 years old, and uh, so uh, I've lived through Six, six decades, and when I was a child and you drove cars around areas, particularly outside of cities, I mean, it was commonplace to have lots of bug splats on, on your windshield. And I can't tell you how many times my dad pulled up to a gas station and he asked me to clean the windshield uh, while, you know, we were getting gas or we were using the restrooms or buying a Coke or something like that. And I can't remember the last time I cleaned my windshield. And... It, so that that's sort of a, a an indication and another one that really sort of rings true for me how much the world has changed uh, you know i've lived across the united states from from california to missouri to uh, new england it is i used to see a lot of moths at, at street lights and you could you could often look up and see 15 or 20 and those numbers are way down and and I can remember being along rivers and lakes where you never left the door open. You had to have screens <laughs> over your windows and, and you didn't leave your door open. I live on uh, Coventry Lake right now and I don't need, I don't need screens and I don't need to leave my, um, I don't, make sure that my door is shut in every, every occasion. It's certainly not an issue if I leave it open for 20 or 30 minutes on, on many cases. So we still see big numbers. We still see big hatches. You know, there's this boom and bust thing and there's good years and bad years, but the world has definitely changed, at least in terms of what I remember. We're going to continue our conversation after the break. We're going to learn more about the factors that are, that are causing this insect decline in places. And we'd love to hear from you too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we're talking about stunning insect declines that have been noted by scientists in parts of the world. You may think insects are annoying, but they're vital to sustaining life on our planet. What's causing them to vanish in places? What can humans do to stop this trend? We're talking about that with my guests on Zoom. Elizabeth Colbert is here, staff writer at The New Yorker, Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Sixth Extinction. She wrote a May 2020 cover story for National Geographic about worldwide insect decline. Uh, Dr. David Wagner is also here, entomologist and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn. And joining our conversation now on Zoom is Matthew Forrester, an insect ecologist at the University of Nevada, Reno. Uh, Matthew, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So when we talk about insects, 
insect decline and how to quantify and explain it. Can you talk more about, uh, you know, when we think about patterns that we might see in one area? So this is not necessarily insect decline across the board, but can you talk more about some of the trends seen and what does that mean in your eyes as an insect ecologist? Sure. Um, as you discussed in the first part of your show, insects are hugely diverse. So you're exactly right. In any one area, nothing is across the board. Some insects go up, some go down. Um, Elizabeth started by talking about that explosion of butterflies that we were able to see a couple of years ago. Uh, this is the challenge of studying insects over time, sort of figuring out overall trajectories or change in the face of that complexity, both sort of different species having known their own population trajectories and different habitats um, having different overall abundance. So to figure that out, we, we need a lot of data. We need a lot of data from different habitats and different species, and then we can look for patterns and change over time. Uh, Dave, is it important to stress too that while it, scientists are seeing decline of certain species in, in certain parts of the world, there's other places where you're seeing increases in species. Can you talk about that? Maybe how that relates to where we are in New England? Well, we're always going to see winners and losers in nature. There's nothing that we do in nature where there's not going to be some species gaining and some species going away and, and perhaps some going extinct. So it's a very dynamic process and world that we live in. But in New England, we're warming because of climate change. And as a consequence, butterflies that were found south of Connecticut or couldn't overwinter here successfully are now doing so. We've added two species, two swallowtails, two beautiful insects to the fauna of Connecticut since I've been a faculty member at the university. So we now have a, a beautiful pipe vine swallowtail and we have the giant swallowtail, a spectacular butterfly, maybe the largest butterfly in all of New England, but that's climate warming. And so there, there will be these species moving into the state and we're also seeing the opposite of that. We've We've lost the Atlantis fritillary. We've lost the Arctic skipper. So species that are adapted to colder climates have been pushed northward. They're losing, they're losing ground. And I guess the big, big question is whether or not um, we're, we're, we're losing more than we're gaining. And uh, in certain cases, certain states are going to have more species, but they may have a lot less individuals. When we hear about these invasive insects that are now in our region, Dave, I'm thinking of, was it the Asian longhorn beetle? There's others that uh, I'm sure you know better, the lanternfly. How does uh, climate impact uh, their populations and the devastating consequences that we're seeing with uh, particular trees in, in Connecticut? Well, I don't know about Connecticut, but we... we, we on a global scale, or at least across the U.S., uh, climate change and particularly droughts can really affect whether or not um, a certain pest has good years or bad years. And the one example that really jumps out at me, given your question, is across all of the Rockies, we have bark beetles that are taking down these wonderful pine forests from Yellowstone and Rocky Mountain National Park and, and really across the West where these trees are now so stressed because of drought that they don't have the, the, the defense systems to fend off bark beetles. And then this becomes a tremendous fire risk uh, for these communities as a result. The big new pest, uh, the big new thing in Connecticut that's just tragic is the emerald ash borer. Mm -hmm. And we, we really, I think, are going to lose 
nearly every ash, particularly um, green ash and, and most of our, our white ashes. And that's such a spectacular tree. We make our baseball bats out of it and ax handles. It's a tremendous wood, uh, but it looks like we're going to be losing maybe over 95, maybe 99% of all the ashes in, in Connecticut. It's very tragic. It's expensive for homeowners. This is $2,000 or more a tree to, to have removed from your yard. And uh, they, th there's cascading or knock-on effects to all of these things that the ashes in North America support about a hundred species of insects that are not found on other plants. And so we're looking at a mini extinction crisis just by moving a beetle from China, a beautiful beetle actually, but it's a pest in North America, killing uh, virtually all of our ashes, uh, all of the tree size ashes across the continent. So that's, that's an example of an exotic species with a really large footprint. Mm -hmm. Dave, earlier you mentioned uh, this conference after that uh, research paper came out of Germany about uh, insect decline. And while we've been talking about climate change, can you talk about some of the other factors uh, that uh, lead uh, to uh, certain species uh, dramatically decreasing or simply disappearing? Well, so this is kind of like death by a thousand cuts and why this is a hard problem for scientists to solve is that it looks like mankind is is tearing apart at the tree of life uh, on so many axes that the obvious one is deforestation um, agriculture is getting incredibly intensive over over acres and acres of if not miles of miles of just the same soybean and corn crops creating almost biological deserts but we also have uh, these exotic species that you've mentioned being moved around the planet by global trade. We have climate change, which uh, Matt will talk about becoming omnipresent and uh, it has all kinds of knock-on effects. But we have insects are challenged also by pesticides and, and herbicides eliminating their, eliminating their host plants. And it's almost an endless list and it, it makes it very, very difficult for nature. And so we're pushing nature into smaller and smaller areas on the planet. And I, I, it's gonna be a rough road. I think we still are predicted to add 2 billion more people to this planet. We already have close to 8 billion and there's just not much room for nature anymore. And it's, we really need to be proactive about what we're going to do with the time we have left. Before I take some listener calls, uh, Matt Forrester, uh, we definitely want to hear about uh, your research, uh, your paper in the journal Science just coming out today talking about the impact of climate change on declining butterfly populations. Uh, what did you find? Yeah, so we looked at a large number of sites across the western U.S. with data mostly collected by average folks, butterfly enthusiasts that go out to these sites every year, sort of the uh, summer equivalent of the Christmas bird count, uh, mm -hmm. which you may have heard of. And we've found that across these more than 70 sites, there's been a steady sort of downward tick in the total number of butterflies observed. So finding that reduction in abundance, which has been seen for other insect groups and indeed other plants and animals around the world, we were then able to ask if places where it has been slightly more severe or less severe can be understood in terms of changes in climate. And indeed, we found that the more severe reductions in the numbers of butterflies seen are in places where temperatures are rising more rapidly. In particular, and this is sort of one of our interesting findings, is that 
warming towards the end of the season in the late summer into fall seems to have the most detrimental effect on butterflies. Talk more about the why autumn specifically, Matt. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Uh, for decades, climate change biologists have been focused on spring. And I think that's because the first climate change patterns in the very early 2000s were in spring. So trees flowering earlier, butterflies emerging earlier, birds migrating sooner. So we've been thinking about spring and how changes in spring might have knock-on effects. Um, but as we turn to look at other parts of the year, in some ways warming in the fall, especially in the temperate zone, it makes sense why that would be bad. It's a, it's a precarious time of year for insects who need to prepare for winter and prepare in some cases for the next generation. So it's a time when if nectar resources, flowers become scarce because of warming conditions, then insects may not be able to find enough of that resource. It's also the case that insects in the temperate zone need to enter a, fa a resting phase to sort of you know sleep, if you will, through winter. And if the conditions are too warm, seems possible that that sleep, that dormancy may just not be successful. It's like you can imagine sort of being constantly woken up by slightly warmer temperatures when you want to just be cold and be out. So then they may not make it till spring or that spring may come and they don't have enough fat reserves um, to be successful then. So those are all hypotheses that we raise with this research that need to be tested moving forward. Dave, uh, what was your reaction uh, to uh, Matt's uh, research? And again, we think about butterflies being key pollinators. Well, one of the problems about this insect decline is conveying the magnitude, especially when scientists are kicking around numbers of 1% decline per year. And with birds, it's the same. It's about 1% decline per year. And most people, when they hear that, they don't think that's very significant, I guess. They don't engage. And it actually turns out that if you're losing 1% a year, you don't have much left after just three or four decades. So it's actually a pretty catastrophic percentage when you when you actually think about it. If, it were, if you were losing your own money at 1% a year, that would be a cause for changing your behavior in a very rapid way, uh, particularly if you were going to project into your retirement. Um, but Matt's study was 1.6% and in some butterflies, 1.8%. So almost double uh, for certain, certain um, ways of looking at the data. And to me, that really scared me. It was half again as much or, or a faster rate of decline than, than people uh, understand, but it, we, we cannot lose nature at 1.6% uh, per year. And that's the, the rate of decline for these Western butterflies. And, and possibly um, it looks like it's being driven by climate change in the sense that we're really talking about this drying out of the West and the extending fall. And so what people have to engage in and, and do what they can to slow climate change uh, on a personal basis, um, on uh, a regional basis, and um, really on a global basis. We, we need uh, to, to be back in the Paris Climate Accord and take action. And coming up, we are going to talk more about what each of us individually can do uh, to help uh, insects around us. I want to take uh, some listener calls now. Uh, Aaron is calling in from New Milford. Aaron, go ahead. Okay. Sorry, I want to get you off speaker. All right, there we go. Hi. Um, I was calling with a question. I'm planning to plant um, 
the part of my lawn that I plant flowers in to support monarch butterflies. But when I'm looking at the butterfly gardens that are out there, it does seem like most of them are about monarchs. Are there other things I should consider for Connecticut that would help with other species of butterflies or other beneficial insects? Dave, do you want to take that one? Well, that's pretty easy. So I, I like the idea of just rewilding part of your yard. I think that's really what would help the greatest numbers of species. I think I mentioned that we might have 25,000 species of insects in Connecticut. And so if you're just rewilding a part of your yard and not having lawn and not putting pesticides uh, on, on that area of the lawn, you're really creating a little slice of nature, which is going to be food for birds and um, all kinds of other animals. And, and so the pollinator garden is a wonderful idea. And planting milkweed is wonderful. Milk monarchs are really having a difficult time. But I would think anything that you might do to uh, promote native species and maybe this little nature observatory or uh, wild, this little wildland in your backyard would be awesome. Uh, Aaron, before we go to our next call, I know I let some wild thistle grow in my garden last summer next to an herb area where we had parsley and we had beautiful swallowtails and their caterpillars. If you don't mind them eating parsley, but that's another way to attract another butterfly other than the monarch. Uh, Julie's calling in from Newington. Julie, you're on the show. Hi, um, I just wanted to add to the butterflies. If you grow asters, um, that's a wonderful way to feed the bees and the butterflies um, that come back year after year. So um, I had a couple comments and questions in regards to people spraying their lawns. Um, my husband and I have been really noting in the area um, how much people spray, including our towns, spraying um, weeds uh, right off the highways, spraying, you know, libraries, you know, around that area, around the parks. You know, in Newington, I know they spray our public parks. Many people go to Mill Pond. Many people use the library. I mean, obviously, pandemic we're not there as much, but, you know, um, if they're putting signs that say, you know, for children and dogs not to walk on these areas, why are they allowed to spray? What is that doing to our water system with our runoff? And why are we spraying so much? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, these towns have excuses like, oh, it's going to take time to weed, uh, you know, but what, it, what is the bigger uh, problem that we're going to have later with killing off all these insects? And excellent. Excellent comments and questions, uh, Julie. Matt Forster, uh, I know you have thoughts on this and just talking about the impact of pesticides and, and making the perfect green lawn on insects around us. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think a good place to start it, when you see that kind of behavior, those signs, right? It is shocking to go to your local park and have a sign saying children and dogs shouldn't walk here. One response is maybe not to call the city and just get angry, but to call the city and ask, hey, can I have a list of where this spraying happens and when, um, because I, I wanna pay attention. You can start a conversation that way. But the bigger problem is that I think as Americans, we just have this obsession with neat and tidy public spaces um, and, it, and it has to change a bit. If we let the margins of public areas just be a bit weedier, a bit wilder, um, they will be used by insects and it can be an important resource. Um, where I live in the West, we have a tendency to think that, oh, we have all of this public land, you know, don't, insects and animals, they're fine somewhere out there in that land. Well, one thing our research shows now is that they're not fine out there. So the choices you make in your backyard matter. And when you see 
you know, too many aphids on your roses and you want to go to Home Depot, the, the power of the pesticides you can buy in stores is really colossal. And often the directions are not clear. So you take something home, maybe it's not clear how to dilute it and you put very powerful poisons in your yard and they have other consequences. So my message is let's live with a little bit of mess because nature's messy and nature needs more messy spaces. So forget about perfect roses. Let's have more insects in our backyards. That's Matthew Forrester, insect ecologist at the University of Nevada, Reno. You also heard Dr. David Wagner, entomologist and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn. I wanted to bring Elizabeth Colbert back into uh, this conversation again. You wrote the cover story for National Geographic last May on worldwide insect decline. We talked about the tropics. We talked about the um, vast amount of insects that live in the tropics. Can you tell us what researchers in Costa Rica are telling you about insect decline there and the impact? Well, once again, I, I have to defer to Matt here, who did a lot of this research. But one, you know, one of the really dismaying findings, you know, the vast, no, vast uh, majority of insects, the vast majority, really, of, of virtually all orders of, of creatures live in the tropics. Biodiversity is just um, fantastically. Uh, greater in the tropics than it is in the temperate zones and it is in the Arctic zones um, for, you know, complicated reasons that, that ecologists are still trying to tease out. Um, so, you know, most of our, our biodiversity on earth is in the tropics. And when this study from Germany came out, you know, there were, there was this sort of possibility, I suppose that, you know, even though, one of the things that also alarmed scientists when that German study came out was that these numbers were taken from what were sort of labeled nature preserves. Um, now, most of them were were near agricultural zones and near urban zones because, you know, Germany is just a very highly settled country. It's been settled for a very long time. Um, and so one of the questions was, okay, if you go to other parts of the world, are you going to find the same thing? And that question has not really been answered yet, but some of these, you know, results um, that that Matt has gotten, you know, in Costa Rica, and also that uh, that other scientists have have observed, suggest well, we are seeing similar um, phenomena, or maybe not quite as dire, but you know, also declines even in pretty remote areas, and that really does point the finger seems to point the finger at, at climate change because what would be going on in those areas that would, you know, we, we can't point to agriculture and pesticides. They're certainly not as, as directly as we might be able to in very agricultural areas. Matt, can you add to that when we think about climate change affecting the tropics? So thinking about flooding, but also how longer dry seasons are impacting insect populations? Yeah, so those, I mean, it's fair to say that the biodiversity of Earth lives on wet tropical mountains. Um, and so when we have slightly warmer conditions and we have longer dry spells, like you said, um, it's shifting those mountain ecosystems in ways that are pretty scary. Um, think about warming masses of air just sort of lingering on these mountains longer and insect populations that are naturally at low density, which is part of the way we have such diversity in the tropics. You know, there's not a ton of any one thing. There's lots of everything. And you stress that a bit, you can lose lots of things rapidly. The research that uh, Elizabeth alluded to that I've been lucky to be involved with, I'm not actually a tropical ecologist, but I've worked with tropical ecologists um, in this forest in Costa Rica 
there are entire genera, so the genus includes many species, there are entire genera of moths in this forest where researchers go all the time that just haven't been seen in many years. So not just one species, but groups of species the researchers used to sort of pick off the lights at night, as Dave alluded to earlier, and they just can't find them now. Um, where are they? And these are places that mostly are impacted by climate. There is some influence of agriculture in the tropics. That is a serious issue, but it's true. These tropical mountains, we can think of climate as an important driver there. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Now, scientists aren't just gathering data on insect declines in parts of the world. They've also published papers detailing the things we as individuals can do to help insects. More about that with my guests coming up after a short break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I'm talking with my guests about worldwide insect decline. You can join us. Uh, Tisha's calling in from Middletown. Go ahead, Tisha. Hi. I just wanted to comment that two forms of pollution that people don't really take into regard in this light are noise pollution from leaf blowers and such and light pollution and their, their, their effects on the insect population. Thank you. Thank you, Tisha, for calling in. I know, Dave, you mentioned, I believe, uh, light pollution earlier. I know that when we talk about things that individuals can do, sometimes when we think about the impact of climate change, it feels so huge. But could you talk more about this paper that came out of eight things that individuals can do to help insects around us? Right. So this was uh, one of the papers in our collection, and it was basically about giving people agency. So We hear so many environmental problems that really need addressing, and and we know that we're running out of time, and there's certain urgency, and it's people want to do things. And so one of these papers included about eight simple things that you can do, and and some of these are, are really easy. We've already touched on some of these things, like just dialing back the the pesticides that one uses. So many of the pesticides that are used in Connecticut are really cosmetic. And the the thing that really is frustrating is that pesticide companies want you to use pesticides, obviously. And so a a lot, maybe maybe 80% of what is being used in Connecticut would be prophylactic. It would, people are told to put these pesticides down two or three times a year. And in many cases, there's not even an insect problem at, at that point in time. And they want the they want you to use these on the edges of your home. And, and maybe if you see a fly in the kitchen, you know, have pesticides sprayed in your house, that's absolutely crazy. So it would be very, very easy to, to dial back the amount of pesticide use. And, and then there's using pesticides to control an aphid problem, like Matt mentioned, but um, there's also cause, you know, just sort of these prophylactic uses where we're, we're spraying over, you know, like these, these uh, town open spaces and, and roadsides. I think that is if we, if we just cut back the cosmetic use of, of pesticides and got back to a little bit wilder, a little bit messier ecosystem, we made room for nature. I think that would go a long way, but there's just all kinds of things we can do. Uh, planting gardens, uh, pollinator gardens is so wonderful for, for children and, and uh, people that can't get around, maybe older people that, that can't hike up to the top of Castle Peak. Uh, it would be great to have a little nature, uh, your little observatory of nature by planting a pollinator garden. 
um, especially uh, not only in your own place, but think about doing this in a, in a schoolyard or a, a public park. And were you to do that in a public park or schoolyard, I'm sure that there would be garden clubs that would be very interested in, in funding such a project. I know that the Hartford, the Garden Club of Hartford is doing pollinator gardens in Keeney Park. And uh, this, this has tremendous impact and, and sort of carryover to children and other people that might be in those public spaces. Um, you know, if you're planting your yard, use natives for crying out loud. If, you, if you're getting ornamentals from the nursery, um, these oftentimes don't support any insects because they're from another country. They're from somewhere in China or, or, or Japan or South America. They're not going to support insects. You might as well put up a sign that birds are not welcome in your yard if you're making those kinds of decisions. If you plant native plants, they'll have caterpillars and those caterpillars will make nestlings and then you'll have bird song. And so it, there's all kinds of personal decisions that could be made. And, and maybe one of the most important things is I think we just need to change our, our attitude about nature and, and insects. And so if, if there could be a little more education and um, change our culture a little bit. Insects are quite loved in, in many parts of Asia. They're kept as pets. Uh, people bring, they have cricket cages at the store so you can bring in crickets to sing in your house. Um, you can buy all kinds of beetles and, and, and the like in various Asian countries and, and the kids grow these and keep them as pets. Uh, they're, they're a kind of pets. And so a very, very different attitude across the world. And I, I would say the U.S. has got uh, the worst reputation or, or close to it in terms of they, you know, they don't want to be a part of nature anymore. And I think we need to change that. Uh, we have to live. We have to live with nature. I'm glad you bring up the point about perceptions, because I was thinking about, I'm sure you have thoughts as an entomologist with the Asian giant hornet in the in this country. It's called the murder hornet, and it, it grabs headlines, and people get freaked out about uh, big flying bugs in their yard, and that can be detrimental when you think about the types of chemicals, because people feel that they're dangerous to be around, Dave. Yeah, yeah, I you know, the media is going to hype everything. Like the killer bee was going to be the worst thing that ever happened to the United States. And people were going to be stung to death, you know, on a daily basis. And, you know, the, the bees in Texas and Arizona and California now are completely Africanized. And they're, they're basically killer bees. And, you know, you don't hear anything about it. I work around them all the time. You have to be a little more careful, a little more cognizant. And the murder hornet is just a terrible, terrible name for an animal. I'm sure if you looked at this under a microscope, it would be fascinating. And that, and they are not a real human threat um, in in any way. Certainly not as big a threat as you know, getting in your car and driving uh, uh, you know even five miles to a shopping center is has a higher risk. So we we tend to uh, blow up the risk for these new entities or these new things that enter and. I, I just think that we need to do a better job of education and and bringing nature and people together so that they can uh, co both coexist, that we're not at odds, it's not a war. You're hearing Dr. David Wagner, entomologist and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn. Uh, Matthew Forrester, when we think about our backyards as being home to thousands of insects, I know in Connecticut, we just got a, a comment on Facebook, um, how people should approach this idea of not using chemicals in relation to ticks. And people are very concerned about Lyme disease. How do you answer that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
ticks are not such an issue where I live. It's very dry um, in Nevada. But I think the important message, as Dave was just saying, is that the risk from all of these things is always really very, very small um, if you take a few precautions, whereas the benefits are really great. Um, and for any pest species, we would rather have it be part of a functioning ecosystem rather than the sort of lone invader because functioning ecosystems keep all things at low densities. So yeah, where you live having, you know, knee high vegetation in your yard, there is the possibility of ticks, but you can watch out for them. But the benefits of having more nature near you has very measurable benefits, including mental health benefits. This is very well documented that having even a bit of exposure to wild nature, that is nature that hasn't been pruned to be like how we think it should be, has amazing benefits for fighting depression and and making people, you know, just feel better about life. So those benefits far outweigh the occasional risk, which we can take precautions to avoid, like with ticks. We just have a couple of minutes left. I know on the show we've talked often about pollinator pathways. We'll put a link out at where we live uh, for you to learn more about making the area around your home more inviting for pollinators. Uh, Elizabeth uh, Colbert, I wanted you to end when we think about uh, some of the small steps we can take, but looking at a, a global scale, uh, the impacts of climate change, uh, reducing our carbon footprint, uh, that's all related to <laughs> we need to have a policy in place. And so when we think about each day that passes and concerns about the planet warming to two degrees Celsius, I'm just wondering if you could close on some of the thoughts and things that you'll be watching for under this new administration. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we're in a, I'd say, the next two years are going to really be crucial um, because we lost so much time. We really went backwards during the Trump administration. A lot of environmental regulations were real act actively rolled back. And the Biden administration, you know, to its credit, is now very vigorously trying to put a lot of those back into place. Unfortunately, it's just a time-consuming process. Um, but the question of, you know, whether we're going to get... And I think that Biden has put a lot of good people into place and clearly indicated that he intends to do what he can. The, the big question that hovers over things, though, is with such a narrowly divided Senate, can you get the kind of legislative action that unfortunately you really need? It's not climate change is not a problem that can be addressed purely through regulation. Um, so we need some actual legislative action. And I think one thing that people should be looking for uh, is when we get, if we get a big infrastructure package, um, is it going to be money spent wisely? If we spend part of the money, you know, encouraging uh, continued use of fossil fuels and part of the money discouraging the use of fossil fuels, we're, we're not going to get where we need to go. We really need a, a massive end uh, push away from fossil fuels. We need all the arrows pointing in the right direction. Um, and as you know, as Dave has alluded to, we really just don't have a lot of time here. We've gotten ourselves uh, right up against the clock, as it were. Again, you have a new book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. I understand you're looking at interventions that people are looking at because we're running out of time to rely solely on political solutions. We'd love to have you back to talk about that, Elizabeth. Okay, sure. Happy to do so. 
That's Elizabeth Colbert, staff writer at The New Yorker and Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Sixth Extinction. I also want to thank Dr. David Wagner for joining us, entomologist and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn. Thank you, Dave. It was great. Thanks. And also with us, Matthew Forrester, insect ecologist at the University of Nevada, Reno. Matthew, thank you for waking up early to have this conversation. We appreciate it. Thanks. It was great to be with you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show is produced by Carmen Baskoff. Hannes Brown composed our theme music. We hope you have a great week.